6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 7 and 8. So let's go to chapter 8. Knock off another chapter here. Here he's going to talk about the problem of evil. It's very interesting, this whole problem of evil. You know, uh, when you, you, it's a problem that no thinking person can honestly avoid. But it's interesting, it's not unbelief that creates the problem, but faith. If there is no God, then we can hardly blame anyone but ourselves for the evil that's around. So the problem comes around to the extent that if there's a God, why is there all this evil? If we believe in a loving God and so forth... You've got to face the difficult question of why is there so much suffering in the world? Now, it's uh, some people who ponder this come up with the view of being atheists or agnostics, but then they have a whole new problem. There's no God, then where, is, you know, where did all the good come from in this world? It's difficult that we're alone and so on. I won't get into that thing, you know, the current premise that we all came out of a rock, you know. Uh, so Psalm doesn't deny the existence of God or the reality of evil. Nor does he limit the power of God. He's going to try to solve this problem by affirming the factors and seeing them in the proper perspective. We need to recognize that the major source of evil in this world is fallen man. Uh, both good and evil have helped create the problem one kind or another. Solomon uh, explored this problem by looking at three key areas of life. The first is authority. And uh, you know, if we begin with Nimrod uh, in Genesis 10, and we continue through the centuries, looking at Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, the Caesars, in fact, every petty dictator on the planet Earth uh, have oppressed people. People have been oppressed by bad rulers all through man's history. In fact, Solomon himself was guilty of increasing the tax burden and so forth on his subjects in 1 Kings 4 and 12 and so forth, heavy yoke of taxation. Now, I should also keep in mind as we go through this, when you talk about a king in those days, uh, he held life or death in his hands. And he often used that capriciously. And we're going to see some of that, you know, Saul as an example and other things. But these were not elected officials. They weren't uh, in any way uh, uh, responsible to the people in any true sense of the term. It's kind of interesting that even the ultimate dictator, in the history of man, will be a return, we believe, of Nimrod, the Assyrian, the final ruler of planet Earth, as Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 10 and others uh, comment on. But let's go into chapter 8, verse 1. Who is the wise man who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that, and that in regard of the oath of God. And be not hasty to go out of his sight, stand not in the evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. What he seems to be describing here is an officer in a royal court, a man who had to carry out the orders of a despotic ruler, and the officer had wisdom, he showed his face, but 
what happens if the king commands a servant to do something evil, something that the servant really doesn't want to do? What does he do? He's, we're going to discover there's probably four possible approaches to that dilemma. First, basically, I counsel you to keep the king's commandment in regard to the oath of God. If you know, see, your first option would be disobedience. That's a big, probably a big mistake. He says his, his counsel is keep the king's commandment. Why? Well, first of all, you've got to be true to your oath of allegiance to the king and to God, who is the source of all the authority. In any case, Romans 13 fits here. And to, to disobey would be breaking a promise to that king. So you've got a problem there. We're going to suggest there's four possibilities. Disobedience, a desertion, defiance or discernment. That's pretty much the way Solomon's going to, to, to deal with this in this chapter. Verse 3 says, Be ye not hasty to go out of his sight, stand not in an evil thing, for he, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? What he's really saying is the king has power. You got the, there's the reality that his word's bound to prevail. If it's your word against his, he's going to win, you know, in, in effect. King can do no wrong. There's no law that could find the king guilty in those days. And so he goes on, Whosoever keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. The wise uh, wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Third, the officer should obey the orders so he can avoid punishment on the one hand, because his disobedience could mean death. And Paul uses a similar argument in Romans 13. Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. A wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is a time and a judgment. Therefore, the misery of man is great upon him. We get to this whole area of discernment. See, a wise servant can uh, uh, consider the time of things. And, and uh, often there is a, an opportunity to let time go and to find the right procedure for the right time. An impulsive person may overreact, storms out of the room or what have you. The wise heart will know the proper time procedures, really what he's arguing. This is exemplified, for example, in Joseph. Remember when Joseph found out, when his, his brothers came to him the first time, he didn't let them know he was Joseph. He did a whole, through a whole procedure, part of which was to find out where their heart was, how were, what was their attitude towards their father, and so forth. And once he heard them confess their sins, then he knew it was the right time to identify who he really was. And that an incredible scene. And in Genesis 43 through 45, fabulous story. And his handling of this delicate situation is a masterpiece of wisdom, if in effect. Nehemiah was burdened because the walls of Jerusalem were, they didn't have the authority to rebuild them. But he wasn't sure the king would release the task, but he waited and watched and prayed, knowing that God would one day open the way to him. And one day he did. He found the opportune time and got permission from his boss to go there and rebuild the, the city walls, which of course led to the whole rebuilding under Nehemiah. And uh, he knew how to discern the time. Daniel, even as a kid, when he was in Babylon, was a prisoner of war with his hostage, uh, with his three buddies. They played their cards in terms of not eating the Babylonian food and so forth in chapter 1. And, uh, and you find the apostles used discernment too in Acts 4 and 5 and so forth. And they showed respect to those in authority, even though the religious... Leaders had prejudiced uh, and acted illegally, and they were willing to suffer for their faith, and they had let, they were cool. They were cool. Verse 7, For he knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? There is no man that hath the power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he the power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. 
One thing sure that the day will come that wickedness will be judged. Even kings won't escape. And by the way, something else you understand, that no one can control the wind or prevent the day of the... The word wind and spirit is the same word in the Hebrew. Ruach, it's the same word. And nobody can get discharged when the war going on. It's sort of the flavor of this. And no one can stop the, you know, the inexorable working of God's law. What they reap, what they sow, they'll reap and so forth. Well, I mentioned uh, another thing. Uh, one of his views in this whole series was desertion and uh, can't de- or in defiance, and that was back in chapter three. Don't stand up for a bad cause, he said, and uh, don't you know be careful when you get into plots against the crown. Does that raise a whole another question for discussion? Is this whole issue of civil di- disobedience? Uh, is it uh, is there room for civil disobedience in the life of the believer? Uh, do law-abiding citizens have the the right to resist authority when they feel the law is not just? And uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote that uh, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Was he right? That's a great discussion point for you. Most believers will agree with Peter. We ought to obey God rather than men in Acts 5.29. Christian prisoners and martyrs throughout the ages have testified of their courage and of conscience and the importance of standing up for what's right. But uh, it's, a, it's a heavy issue. Well, let's move on to verse 9, so we can make it. I think we're going to make it. All this have I seen and applied my heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. And so I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. We have by now, by this verse, we've, we've seen the options of disobeying, running away, defying, and even fighting back. But he's arguing that we need to exercise discernment. And it's not easy to be a consistent Christian in a complicated, evil world. But we can ask for the wisdom of God and receive it by faith, according to James 1 and 3 and so on. In verse 10, he seems to be reporting on a funeral that he attended. The deceased man was one that had frequented the temple, that is, the place of the holy. He received much praise from the people. But he, had not, he hadn't lived a godly life. Yet he was given a magnificent funeral with an eloquent eulogy. And the truly godly people of the city were apparently ignored and forgotten. And whenever I think of this, I'm reminded of a, a story of a, I've forgotten the name of the missionary and his wife that were returning from, I think, 40 years of service in Africa on a, sh- a ship by the time of Teddy Roosevelt. It happened to be on that ship when Teddy Roosevelt was coming back from a safari in Africa. And when the ship landed in New York, there were bands and press because Teddy Roosevelt came and the you know the things he, he his hunt his safari was big successful big crowds because the president came back and uh, as they finally the crowd dissipated the missionary and his wife got off the ship and of course there's nobody there to meet them and the husband the missionary was really depressed because uh, here. You have the superficial issue of Teddy Roosevelt returning and all this hubla, and here, 40 years of service to the Lord, and no one to meet him. His wife turned to him and says, that's okay, we're not home yet. And I, I just, that says it all. Okay, verse 11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. 
That's pretty straightforward. That, that's the long view. It's a good example of Solomon seeing, uh, putting this all in a, in a more realistic perspective. The, w- the wicked will be eventually judged, he's arguing. The righteous will be rewarded. And uh, that's all pretty straightforward. It all echoes Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days. There is but a shadow, because he feareth not before God. And uh, no matter how long or how full the wicked man's life will uh, seem to be, it's only prolonged like a shadow, has no substance. And the shadows get longer as the sun is setting. He's suggesting that the long life of the wicked is but a prelude to eternal darkness. Jude 13 has a lot to say about the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 14, there's a vanity which is done upon the earth, and there must that, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. His concern in verse 14 Putting it in the NIV, it says, righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. And that's a summary of it. See, in spite of good laws and fine people who seek to enforce them, there's still more injustice in this world than we care to admit. Even in this country, where we're so proud of our freedoms, we have a jurisprudence system that is, lets too many guilty go free and too many innocent get convicted despite all the efforts that are placed into it. You know, a Spanish proverb says, laws like a spider's web catch the fly and let the hawks go free. The famous trial lawyer of F. Lee Bailey said, in America, an acquittal doesn't mean you're innocent. It means you beat the rap. (laughs) And all of us with echoes of recent trials um, uh, know exactly what he was saying. (laughs) The poet Robert Frost said, a jury is 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. (laughs) Till Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom, there will always be injustices. And one of the so-called, what Solomon calls the vanities of life, is that we have to accept it without becoming too pessimistic or cynical. That's the challenge. Well, now we get to the area, his third area of wisdom is dealing with mysteries. Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat, to drink, and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor of his days of life, which God giveth him under the sun. This is the fourth time that Solomon admonishes his readers to enjoy life and to delight in the fruit of their labors. He's not saying eat and live and be merry for the, you know, tomorrow we die. He's not, he's not talking about hedonism here. He's talking about seizing the day enjoying life and recognizing not only the blessings, but your ability to enjoy the blessings itself is a gift of God. That's really what he's saying. And uh, to eat, drink, and be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God, which God giveth him under the sun. And it's a, it's, po- it's a positive faith outlook, really. And to accept life as God's special gift. And just as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, to all things richly to enjoy. So instead of complaining about what we don't have, we should give thanks for what we do have and be thanks for our ability to enjoy it. There's two different things there. It's a very profound issue, and he, he, he says that several times. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep in his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God. 
that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. He, he recognizes that even with all wisdom, you will not be able to explain everything. And as I, I think the other phrase to keep in mind, we don't live by explanations, we live by promises. I was intrigued with what Will Durant, the historian, uh, in his multi-volume, uh, you know, story of civilization, he said, uh, he came to the conclusion that our knowledge is a receding mirage in an expanding desert of ignorance. This shouldn't be used for an, as an excuse for uh, stupidity. I'm always reminded because we always misquote Ben Franklin, who his concept of the educated person is something that knew something about everything and everything about something. He's often misquoted, you know, jack of all trades, master of one, is what he said. He's always misquoted, jack of all trades, master of none. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the idea is you should know a little bit about everything to have horizon. You should know everything about something, and that's your, your role. For the Christian, that something that you should know everything about is the Word of God. No, this is not an excuse for, for ignorance or stupidity. It's, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and our, to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. God doesn't expect us to know the unknowable, but He does expect us to learn what we can. In fact, Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, and it is the honor of kings, or the duty of kings, to search it out. And, by the way, to, to obey what he teaches us. There's all kinds of passages that point out that a confession of ignorance is the first step toward true knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2, If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as yet as he ought to know. Alfred North Whitehead said, Not ignorance, but the ignorance of ignorance is the death of knowledge. Well, Blaise Pascal said, If there were no obscurity, man would not feel his corruption. If there were no light, man could not hope for a cure. Thus it is not only right but useful for us that God should be partly concealed and partly revealed. Since it is equally dangerous for man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness as to know his wretchedness without knowing God. Lies Pascal. Well, anyway, we've, uh, <laughs> we've looked through Solomon's re-examination of the vanity of wisdom, some pluses, some minuses, Instead of rejecting wisdom, of course, the king concluded that the wisdom is important to the person who wants to get the most out of life. It can't explain every mystery or solve every problem, but it can help us exercise discernment in our decisions. And as he said in chapter 8, there, yet there's a time and a way for everything. A living Bible paraphrase. And the wise person knows what to do at just the right time. I'll append uh, my little article that was published in our newsletter, and uh, in, I'll, I'll append that article to the notes, to the tape. I prattle on about, about the whole issue of gossip. Um, what I didn't read, but I think I can squeeze in, I closed the article on the gossip thing with a poem by Barbara Young that I'm very fond of. The title of the poem is, I Hear It Said. Last night my friend, he says he's my friend, came in and questioned me. I hear it said that you've done this and that. I've come to ask, are these things true? A glint was in his eye of small distrust. His words were crisp and hot. He measured me with anger and flung down a little heap of facts that had come to him. 
I hear it said that you've done this and that. Suppose I have. Are you not my friend? Are you not my friend enough to say? If it were true, there'd be reason in it. And if I cannot know the how and why, still I trust you, waiting for a word. And for no word, if no word ever come. Is friendship just a thing of afternoons, of pleasuring one's friend and one's dear self? Greed for sedate approval of his pace, suspicion if he take one little turn upon the rod, one flight into the air, and has not sought you for your yea or nay? No. Friendship is not so. I am my own. And howsoever near my friend may draw unto my soul, there is a legend hung over above a certain straight and narrow way that says, Dear friend, you may not enter here. I would the time has come, and it is not, when men shall rise and say, He is my friend. Has he done this? What is that to me? Thank you, I have a check upon his head or a casting rein across his neck. I am his friend. And for that cause I walk not over close to him, leaving still space for his silences and space for mine. It's interesting that the uh, Christian body seems to indulge in judgmental, behind-the-back criticisms. I have been asked by a number of senior pastors that have been abused uh, in this way, you know, uh, there's a, there, there's a, there's a related topic to the gossip thing, and that's this topic of accountability. I might say it's sister cousin of management by hearsay. Matthew 18 gives us three verses that deal with this. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. In other words, here in Matthew 18, we have a prescription by the Lord himself for accountability in the church. And it's very interesting, we seem to err it both ways. We whisper behind the scenes and never get let, letting one really get a chance to respond directly. On the one hand, we don't hit it on straight on where, where there's an accountability issue. There, was a, there was, a, was a law school in Southern California, major law school, in which the dean of the school was uh, accused by one of the students of plagiarism. And uh, there was a very bizarre article in the Orange County Register in which they stripped this guy of his title. But the article, the quote from his boss, was that we hadn't finished our investigation yet. Well, now, wait a minute. You know, what's going on here? It turned out that uh, several people, you know, he's right to, he had a right to confront his accusers and have an investigation. But the law school leadership felt that Matthew 18 didn't apply to them. That just applies to the laity, whatever that means. It's a very, very interesting case study of lack of applying Matthew 18, because it's in the public record. It turned out that the because of the fool, you know, the, the fact that they took action before they admitted their investigations, that gave him cause for a lawsuit. He came to me for counsel, and I encouraged him to file a lawsuit for a lot of good reasons. Because of the threat of the lawsuit, the major one of the major donors to the people that owned the law school was going to withdraw an endowment because it would have been vulnerable to the lawsuit. Because the lawsuit had merit, and you know that got everyone's attention, and finally it was all settled out of court. But uh, 
I was almost sorry that it did because I think there were issues there to the Christian body that need to be laid out, that there is, there is a concept of accountability, there is a concept of on the one hand not gossiping, on the other hand giving someone who's accused an opportunity to respond in a, in a systematic way. I have to tell you that in the, uh, contrasting my 10 years in professional Christianity with the previous 30 years in the corporate boardrooms of America, publicly traded companies, the ethics between the two are a dramatic contrast because the secular world has checks and balances. You libel or slander someone, you'll be in court. In the Christian body, it's all swept under the carpet and never, things are never resolved. And uh, I've seen more breach of fiduciary duty in the 10 years than in the 30 years I was in the secular boardrooms. But part of it is there's there, that we don't invoke the very procedures that Jesus himself laid out for the church to have a, to have some orderly resolution of these things. So on the one hand, we shouldn't gossip. On the other hand, if there is an issue, we should hit it in a systematic way, as Matthew 18 lays out very simply, very directly. Anyway, that's all derivative from some of the discussions of the last two chapters. I'd like you for next time to read the next couple of chapters because it deals with confronting our major enemy, our major enemy. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the vehicle that we call Solomon, that you've used to, on the one hand, acquaint us with man's wisdom and its limitations, and help us realize that the, these things take perspective beyond this life and beyond the earth only in, in eternal perspectives. We thank you, Father, for this book. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, that you will open this book to our lives and open our lives to your word, that we might indeed gain the wisdom, which is the fear, the respect, and the awe of who you really are. Help us to really understand that, Father, and help us to be responsive to your heart and your will in our lives as we commit ourselves to you without any reservation. Indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.